You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 55, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun, informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Molly Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford is a family physician in a direct primary care practice, which she's been running for now a few years, called Bluegrass Family Wellness. She serves as both a family physician and an addiction specialist, helping to treat people with opioid problems, but all within the direct primary care model. Her practice is obviously located in Kentucky. And today I spoke with Dr. Rutherford because she had a very interesting story, one where she has survived the zombie lab scandal. You'll find out more about that as the episode unfolds. In addition to learning more about the scandal and how Dr. Rutherford escaped unscathed from the zombies, we're going to learn about how she practices addiction medicine and how she thinks the model that she has now is far superior to the previous one that she had, where she was an employed physician within a traditional medical system that uses third-party payers. And with a combination of both family medicine and addiction medicine, Dr. Rutherford is able to follow both her passions, maintain her sanity, and make something really work uniquely for her patients. I think this is another example of direct primary care and just the way of physicians find innovative ways of providing the care that they like, that patients like, at a good value. Despite all the problems we have within the healthcare system, it is always encouraging and fun to talk to physicians who have sort of found a niche and a way to solve a lot of the problems they're not going to solve the entire world or fix all these problems, but they're just going to fix their little corner of it. As always, you can find the show notes at theparadox.com slash 055. I'd encourage you to go to the website at theparadox.com to peruse previous episodes and also to sign up for the email list. This is going to basically notify you that there's a show coming up at some point. However, it was a very useful way for you to maintain contact with me and provide ideas for shows that you think should be happen in the future. A lot of the show ideas, the guests I interview, are ones who are made from recommendations from you. And also things I happen to run across on Twitter. Even though justly maligned, Twitter is actually a useful way in social media of finding interesting stories, people, and making connections, and learning new things, as long as you don't pull your hair out in the meantime. It has been a little tricky getting these episodes out, as I've been a little extra busy helping my wife, and I'll have some exciting news about her and what her adventures are personally in the podcasting world in the near future. But for now, I'd like you to sit back and enjoy... Dr. Molly Rutherford, surviving the zombie lab scandal. Enjoy. Well, hello. This is Eric Larson. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Molly Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford's a family physician addiction specialist practicing in Crestwood, Kentucky. After working as an employed physician for eight years, she decided to go on her own and open a direct primary care and a direct addiction treatment practice where she's able to provide individualized care without the administrative hassles of traditional service and practice. She's current president of the Kentucky Academy of Family Physicians and the past president of the Kentucky chapter of the ASAM, which is Addiction 
American Society of Addiction Medicine. Uh, American yeah. Society, yeah, the American Society of Addiction Medicine. She's also a member of the HHS Pain Management Best Practices Interagency Task Force. And the final report in the task force released in May of 2019. Dr. Rutherford was born and raised in Virginia, earned her BS in biology in 92 from VATEC, an MPH from Johns Hopkins in 99, and her MD from EVMS, which I assume is East Virginia Medical School? East, yep, Eastern Virginia, yep. After completed residency in 2006 in Portsmouth, Virginia, her family moved to LaGrange, Kentucky, where she currently resides and is, in, is the owner and operator of the Bluegrass Family Wellness Clinic. So, Dr. Rutherford, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Well, I came across you, well, I, we've been following each other, I suppose, on Twitter for quite a while, which is, tends to be how I find a lot of my guests, but uh, mm-hmm. you have a real interesting story. So why don't you talk about your practice, I guess, right now and what you're doing, and then we'll kind of back up a little bit and just go into sort of how you came on the radar with uh, the law, uh, the legal case. Sure. Um, so my practice, Bluegrass Family Wellness, I started in 2015. We opened in May of 2015. And basically what led me there um, was just burnout. Just many doctors, I'm sure that that I've heard on your podcast and on others have um, been frustrated with the administrative burden and just many tasks that are unrelated to helping take care of patients. And so my first five years after residency, I worked in a, a rural setting and got some loan repayment and for the most part, that was really rewarding, and I wasn't as burnout just because the number of patients I had to see every day was minimal be- with it being rural. And then when I moved to a busier practice in 2012, that was when um, I was having to see 25 to 30 patients a day and supervise a couple of nurse practitioners. And um, the whole reason for me moving to that practice was to try to be closer to my family and so that I would have more time with my family. And it ended up being worse, actually, because I was yeah. um, mm-hmm. just working too much. So that was when I decided to do direct primary care. Um, and then with the addiction specialty, I do addiction treatment as well in the same facility. So um, the practice built quickly, and I've been very blessed as far as that goes. Do you... Uh... Uh, with your with your addiction medicine, do you do that in, do you have special days or do you just kind of mix it with your regular practice? I mix it with the regular practice. That, that was always my dream was to um, kind of have it be, I had worked for other addiction treatment practices. I worked um, at a methadone clinic, for example, and I just felt that the um, patients with addiction were treated differently, you know, um, and so I wanted it to be seamless. I wanted, you know, I wanted it to be such that nobody knew why anybody else was there. And, and, and it really has worked out that way. It's been, it's been great. So, um, so we just allow, you know, 30 minutes per appointment generally for new patients, whether it be addiction or um, primary care, we, we allow an hour for those visits. And um, the only difference really is the, the, the patients that I'm treating for addiction, I'm prescribing buprenorphine. I see them more frequently. It's highly regulated, and we have um, we actually have uh, regulations under the medical board in Kentucky saying pretty much exactly how doctors are supposed to practice. They have standards of care, if you will. They have those defined under the KBML for specifically for buprenorphine treatment. So. 
So I think most of my listeners are familiar with the direct primary care by this point, which is a membership-based care model where there are no third-party administrators, there's no third-party payers, and so it sort of is seamless transition for payment between the the consumer, the patient, and the uh, healthcare provider, which is the physician in this case. Uh, with the addiction medicine, explain a little bit what that, how that is a different sort of practice, because uh, I think most people, when they think most the lay public would think addiction, you're in a you know rehab facility or something like that. So what is an outpatient? What process? I mean, what medication? You, you mentioned buprenorphine, the Suboxone, right? Uh, right. What you don't do methadone, but why don't you describe those sort of things that I suppose you, as you're in your training, you probably did, you know, right. a couple things. So I got into it um, pretty much because when I was practicing in the rural setting, um, I identified, you know, I was seeing it. The right when I started practicing was right in the middle of when, you know, I guess they call it doctor shopping when patients were coming to physicians specifically to feed their addiction. We, you know, I was seeing a lot of that, and so that was when. I decided to get some more training. I found out about buprenorphine, which is better known as Suboxone, and um, went to a weekend course, got a waiver to be able to prescribe that, and then just very gradually started treating patients. And so we refer to it as office-based opioid treatment, OBOT um, for short. Um, And that is different from going to inpatient rehab or residential treatment. It's very much the the patient can get all of their treatment on an outpatient basis. So um, how it works is we have someone come in in withdrawal. Same with a method, methadone clinic. Methadone works very similarly in terms of how they get people started or what we call induced, it's called induction on buprenorphine. They come in, uh, a person will come in in withdrawal and we'll do an evaluation, a history and a physical, and then we will... Um, provide the medication and we'll watch what happens. So we give two to four milligrams of buprenorphine in the office. It's sublingual. And then we reassess 30 minutes later. So there's, there's a a score that you can use. It's called the COW, C-O-W-S. It's a withdrawal score. And so we can actually watch as the medication works. And so, um, so I, I charge, um, a little bit more for the membership for people who are being treated with buprenorphine. And I tried to build in some contingent, what we call contingency management, which is um, if, if a patient is doing well in their recovery, it costs less than if you're having to come in more frequently, for example, or if, and then we also make it less expensive if a patient decides to, um, do Vivitrol, which is a different kind of medication. That's a, it's just it's strictly a blocker of the mu receptors, and um, it's not a scheduled medication, and it's just a less complicated process. So, um, so I base my um, membership price on those types of things. I guess level of care is the best way to describe it. Yeah, as a way to manage your time, I suppose. Right. Um... So yeah. I guess, you know, to, to be, to make it more clear to people who aren't familiar with it, you know, one of the medications we're talking about, the Suboxone is what we call an agonist antagonist. It's a medicine that both covers a, provides some pain relief, but also prevents uh, further effectiveness from other medications like in opioids. 
And so people right. were having problems with opioids and, and the opioids, it's funny because, you know, when we were in training, you know, you'd mentioned opioids, no one had any idea what you're talking about, <laughs> except Mr. Right. Murphy. Now it's like, now it's ubiquitous. Everyone knows what an opioid is because I remember when in my training, you'd, I'm in anesthesia. And so we'd have to tell people, you know, it's basically a narcotic. Narcotic is a bad term because it just means any sort of illicit drug. But right. I mean, that was the only one we would really use our, our morphine or opioid uh, medications. Now, of course, everyone's like, oh, there's a crisis in opioids. And so... But uh, mm -hmm. this is the Suboxone has been, I think, pretty effective. It sounds like as far as a way of helping people stay off, you know, not have go through significant withdrawals and and to not have worse problems with the opioids. Have you had a lot of success with it? Oh, definitely. It's it's amazing. It works really well. I, I mean, I mean, I will will be honest that addiction is complicated. It's not so much about a single drug. So. What right. we'll see is, you know, people will get stable on their opioid addiction and then we'll see them using other things. Um, meth is a really big problem right now. So that's, it's, it's really hard to figure out how to handle that because you don't, I don't want to kick somebody out and have them not have their buprenorphine and then they end up with, you know, whatever from a dealer that has fentanyl in it and, you know, without their knowledge and then they end up dying. But at the same time, there has to be some counseling with, with the patient. Well, you know, this is harmful. This, you don't know what's going to be in this meth that you're using. And, and so, you know, that's when more individual counseling or group counseling get and, and more frequent visits are necessary. So, I mean, that's one thing I've learned. And that's why I became an addiction specialist too. I went ahead and took the boards and, and took some extra training because I just, it's so fascinating. And I think, I think we see it. We all treat addiction daily. Primary care doctors do because we, we, we treat people who smoke, you know, we help them with, mm -hmm. with patches and with, with chantics right. and so forth. And then also with food. I mean, type two diabetes is in many ways food addiction. Well, yeah, it's in, there's, um, when it comes to addiction, there's obviously, it's more than just a, a physiological, or it's just more than the substance, right? I mean, there's, there are lots other layers of the psychological portion of it. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the last question about the, the addiction, I, I know when they're, at least in Michigan, it seems like there's a shortage or there's, there are more people who are seeking this sort of treatment than there are people who, to provide it. And there mm -hmm. are always people like going to training or doing it, but then they always seem to have their caps. And I'm not sure if the caps are enacted by the state, uh, state regulators saying you can only you know see 50 patients a month or, or whatever your patient panel on, on this medication, or if it's just doesn't pay. And so people don't do a lot of it. They just want to help people, but they're like, you know, I only have so much time that I can sort of give away for free. What's the situation? Right. Is, is it, d does it change between States like Kentucky is different than other States or are people paying this for this privately or is it through or through for the state payments? How does it work? Well, well, the original federal law uh, around buprenorphine, when they when they made it legal for just any doctor in an office based practice to prescribe buprenorphine for people with opioid addiction, um, put a cap on your first year. You, uh, you can only see 30 patients. And then I see. Af after one year, I applied to increase to 100 patients. And now there've been some more laws. I can't remember which legislation changed it, but that as an addiction specialist, I can see two, up to 275 patients now. And there's been some talk about getting rid of that limit, um, you know, because the, I mean, if you think about it, the limit doesn't really make a lot of sense if it, 
if, I if I'm able, <laughs> yeah, if I'm able to write a thousand prescriptions for Percocet for someone, then, or, you know, if I'm, if I'm able to prescribe <laughs> to a thousand people Percocet, why shouldn't I be able to help as many people as possible with, with opioid dependence? And so th- there's been, I think there might be some legislation in, in the Congress and the U S Congress about trying to get rid of that, that cap. But having said that, I think that, I mean, this, this kind of segues nicely into what we're going to talk about. And that's our dysfunctional healthcare system is it's, it's really hard to take some primary care physicians who are already totally overwhelmed with everything going on and, uh, you know, electronic medical records and MIPS and macro and just, so much nonsense and having seven minutes with a patient and then tacking on to that. Oh, by the way, you really, you're a bad person if you don't, if you don't take on this addiction crisis as well, you know, it's just, yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and it's not that easy. I mean, it, it really takes time to get good at it. Yeah. And, and I'm one of those people who I do try to encourage people to do it. But I also I'm realistic about certain people are not going to be a good fit for this type of work. Um, it's just they're not going to enjoy it or they're going to be easy, easily manipulated. And, um, you know, people will criticize me probably for saying that because it, it sounds stigmatizing towards people with addiction. But um, I'm just being realistic. It's not the work is not for everyone. Um, but I, I love it and I find it very rewarding and, you know, I look at it as harm reduction. I don't, I stopped expecting perfection from any of my patients, you know, after a few years of practicing. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so it's just, I think it's wonderful. And I think, you know, I hope more people will, will decide to try it out and then find it as fulfilling as I did. But I understand why many, many physicians just don't even want to take it on at this point. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's the great thing about medicine. There are so many different um, specialties that you can usually find one or two that are going to fit your personality and sort of the the pace that it moves at and sort of the the various challenges, whether it's procedurally or cognitively and, and sort of the, the problems you face. And so, I mean, I always think of my, my father who finished his career doing occupational medicine, which for him he he always said it was a good thing to end your career with because he kind of felt like he was always getting he's just trying to basically catch people trying to fake out docs <laughs> trying you know yeah. having work at replace work related injuries and so he'd do something and they'd you know jump out of the wheelchair and discuss he's like ah oh, see you're fine you know I mean so he really got a kick you just have to kind of like that sort of thing or whatever it might be I and mean, if you're okay with the confrontation or that and like you said I mean these people with addiction have all sorts of problems. I mean, anyone who knows someone who's a drinking problem or any, you know, a oh, substance yeah. abuse problem, they know these people have lots of problems. And so you can't be just, just the average person can't, uh, can't do without having all the techniques and strategies to deal with those people. Right. Well, and you can't, you can't be overly judgmental. It's, it's so funny because right. I, uh, you know, we'll, we'll tell people when they come in for their first visit, we, all we really require of people is honesty we're not going to discharge people for relapse. That's part of it. You know, that's part of the disease. So we just prefer for everyone to be honest. And, um, but they, it, it's a pattern of behavior 
you know, so it takes a while for people to get comfortable with that because they're, they've been used to being in active addiction and part of active addiction is involves a lot of deception. So um, it just takes a while to build that trust. So I couldn't do it in the system. I can tell you that I couldn't do it with seven minutes, you know, or 10 minutes even with, with people. So. Yeah. I don't know how you could. Mm-mm. So this kind of brings us back to why I initially contacted you because you, you posted some at Twitter. I was pretty amazed. So yeah, you were employed as you as we talked about in the bio. You you were employed employed in a couple practices. Sounds like after your training, and then until you went out to struck out on your own a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So why don't you describe what happened and what? I guess maybe just start with what happened as far as this uh, this lawsuit and what's going yeah. on in the practice yeah. you had. So um, when I left Carrollton, Carrollton, Kentucky was the rural practice I was working in straight out of residency, and that was hospital owned, um, so nonprofit. I came to LaGrange where I live and joined a a patient-centered medical home, but it was owned by an independent physician, um, an internal medicine ped doc, actually. And he had been in this community for many, many years and was well-respected and had a great reputation. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to disparage him with this story at all, but um, I joined the practice and we were accepting Medicaid and, you know, um, it became very clear after joining the practice that um, I was going to have to see, you know, 25 to 30 patients a day to justify my salary. I was salaried, pure salary. I didn't even want productivity bonuses. I just didn't want that. I wanted, the reason I took the position was I wanted time with my kids. My, I have two boys and they were very young at the time. And I wanted to be able to, you know, if one of them got sick at school, I wanted to be the one to be able to go get them from school and take them home. Sure. My my husband's police, he's law enforcement. So, um, you know, that's in Louisville. So that was not going to be an option for him. And, um, we didn't have much family. So that, that was, that was my thinking of taking this position and it just ended up being a disaster because I was there late every night. I was bringing home charting in the evenings. Um, but soon after, um, I joined the practice, we started getting these visits from these HDL reps. So HDL was the, is the, is a company out of Richmond, Virginia. They did specialized lipid testing and, um, they, Right away, um, the owner of the practice and several people would come in to, I guess they were reps for the company, would come in trying to convince us, me, another physician at the practice and a few nurse practitioners that these, you know, these extended lipid panels, these specialty lipid labs were just wonderful and that we should be ordering them on everyone. And, um, that they were going to be covered. The the main thing that they would say was they're, they were in network with most insurance companies, including Medicare and Medicaid. And if, if a patient's insurance ended up being out of network, they would not, they would never get a bill from HDL. So it, and I saw this with the toxicology labs and addiction medicine too, by the way, it was, it's, it's really sketchy and it's, they're lying because these patients eventually did end up getting bills. And the patients were furious, understandably. So within a few months, um, I noticed that the owner of the practice was ordering labs on my patients. 
without my knowledge. Um, really? And oh yeah, yeah. So I nipped that in the bud. I mean, I basically, you know, I went to him and I said, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing, but stop. These, you know, these, these are my patients. I don't, I don't want these labs. I mean, it was ridiculous. So I, I nipped that in the bud, and then I, I did order some of those labs um, on some patients and just try. You know, I was employed. I was just trying to do. Um, I was new and employed and I thought, okay, I'll try this out. And, and within a month or two, maybe a little bit longer, I realized that they, they really didn't have much utility um, for most patients. And when I found out the price and what people were being billed, then that was when I said, I'm not ordering these anymore. But I know so let me stop you. Oh, yeah. just, let me stop you for just a moment. So, Mm-hmm. This this lab is there. When you say lipid profile, they're like cholesterol. They're basically doing it in depth. Are yeah. they just are they looking and at NMR, all the different like triglycerides and stuff? Yeah, like NMR is 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 the I think most people will know. Most physicians will know what I'm referring to when I say NMR. But it it um it was more specific about it broke down all of the particles. So VLDL, and then you got an ApoB. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. All of these complicated lipid markers that in some people might be of value if you're on the fence, for example, of whether or not to treat somebody with, um, with a cholesterol medication. But in most of my patients, they were not helpful. Um, and then there were a couple other tests on there, like factor five Leiden genetic testing. And then the test that would tell if a person was going to do better on Plavix or the other, um, I'm blanking on the name of it, um, but the other medicine that they give after um, stent placement. Um, so, so those might have some utility just to have in the chart on someone in case you know 20, 20 years down the road they had they had a heart attack, had to have a stent. You would know if Plavix was not going to be the best medication for them. So, um, so I would order those occasionally just to have that information, and then. Um, everything else just seemed, it just, it didn't change my management. That's one of the things that we learn in medical school. And then especially in family medicine residency is don't order a test if it's not going to change your management. And so once I realized that this complicated lipid panel did not change my management, I stopped ordering it and I just ordered regular lipids on those people. And then, you know, I happened to notice that, um, that the, the nurse practitioner and could be because in the electronic medical record, you could see if you could see lab orders that other physicians within the practice were ordering. And occasionally I would see like an urgent care visit of one of this, my bosses, I'd see one of his patients. Um, uh-huh. for something urgent, for example. Sure. And I would yeah, look yeah. through the chart and he was ordering these complicated lipid panels on these patients every three months. Wow. Yeah, every three months, which isn't even the standard of care for regular lipids. So, um, so I, 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 I can remember kind of venting about it to um, the other physician and a couple other of the nurse practitioners like I this doesn't this seems sketchy I just think you know why is he doing this I think he's gonna get in trouble um and occasionally we would have suspicious 
Well, we, I'm sorry, were, you, I, were you suspicious or were you just thinking this is kind of like a guy just practicing bad medicine and he's, he's I, just like almost incompetent? I, I, I didn't think he was incompetent because I knew him and I knew he had a great reputation and he was well trained and he was smart, but I thought he was doing it for revenue somehow for revenue. Okay. I, so I was you, suspicious. So you were suspicious because, of a revenue. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, because he was, I remember when we would have staff meetings and so forth, he had been independent forever since he came out of residency. And this was the time when private practices were really struggling and, you know, hospitals were coming in offering to save these physician practices uh, by buying them. And so right, he right. did not want to fall into that category. And I get it. I, I mean, I sympathize with that, but um, yeah, so I was, I didn't know. I had no confirmation, but I was just, it just made me uncomfortable. And, um, and then when we would have staff meetings and he would, he would bring up, he would bring up these lipid labs too, kind of urging us to order them. So then, then there was maybe some confirmation that, I don't know, it was just all very, I did I did not understand it, but he, he always said, um, he would always emphasize that E&M codes was not where revenue came from and that like mm -hmm. it or not, we had to get <laughs> revenue from other places. And so uh, he, he tried to institute, you know, if somebody came in with a cough, for example, he would have these automatic protocols for our medical assistants to do spirometry. I mean, ridiculous things for anyone oh, wow. who came in. Yeah. Um, so it was desperation. I, you know, in hindsight, I can see it was desperation of trying to remain independent. And, um, so anyway, I, I became really burnt out. I thought I just was not happy there at all. I just did not, it was, it was a bad, bad fit for me in many, many ways, even though I met some wonderful people there. My, my current practice manager, medical assistant, she was my medical assistant there. So, you know, when they tried to put those automatic protocols through, I said, I told, I told her, I said, we're not doing that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I'll tell you what we need to order on the patient. There's, we're not doing that. Um, and then, you know, once the Medicare wellness exams came out, they were calling people, just nagging them to come in for the Medicare wellness exam because that, that, that exam pays very well. So there was just a lot of that going on. And um, when I left in 2015, I just kind of, I, I, I very quickly built the practice and I was very happy. I mean, there, of course, there are stressors to owning your own practice, but I think it was two, summer of 2017 was when I got the subpoena um, or got the paper. Yeah. got the paperwork about this HDL lawsuit. And um, my friend, my colleague, the other doctor and another nurse practitioner were also named on it. And so um, essentially the, it was the bankruptcy trustee who sued, I think it was, thousands of doctors throughout the United States who were involved in this kickback, well, kickback scheme, right. basically, with, um, with HDL Labs. Some of, the, some of the physicians, and I'm not sure if my boss was or not, were speaking for them and making money that way. 
And then others were just getting this, what they called a packaging and handling fee per, I think it was, I think it was $20 per lipid test that was ordered. The practice got that, that amount for every HGL specialty lab that was ordered. And they, and the lawyers that were involved with HDL swore that it was all legal and that it wasn't, you know, against Stark laws. Um, right. And so it turns out this, this contract was signed before I was even hired. So I didn't know anything about it. My name was not on it. They tried to say, the, the bankruptcy trustee at the beginning tried to say that because my salary depended on this revenue, that I was complicit in it. And, right. and same, same with my two colleagues. And I think there were several doctors and nurse practitioners throughout the country who went through the same thing. So, yeah. So basically, there's this, there's this lab that was running these specialized tests. They were probably, most for the most part, not very helpful. I mean, on, like, on rare occasions, it'd be useful. They go mm-hmm. bankrupt. They have these right. deals all over the country. They have people who they're paying speakers, oftentimes these practitioners who are also ordering these tests, to go to other practices and say, hey, this is a great lab. Let me tell you what kind of thing, information you get about it. It's great when you order these tests. It's, you know, they're fantastic. Uh, and then for every time that lab was ordered, there was this, I imagine they, the terminology they use is a rebate, right? They'd say, well, if you order it, we'll give you a packaging handling rebate of $20 for a test. Right. And that just goes right back in your practice, and that's a way that your the owner of your practice saw it as an additional revenue stream. And obviously, the more times they order tests, I mean, this is classic as far as when people talk about crooked uh, physicians yeah. who are running extra tests just to generate revenue. And most of us are like, "That's crazy." Most docs don't do that, but some do. <laughs> right? right. And mm-hmm. and so, it, it when reading the article, it sounded like the contention was that a lot of these physicians knew about the deal or they they had some sort of productivity model, I suppose, not in your case, but others. And so that they said that they were, you know, part of this racketeering kind of um, scheme, I guess, and that you just mm-hmm. got lumped into it. And, you're, and you can imagine there are employees all over the country who are physicians and nurse practitioners, other people who are, you know, ordering these tests with no idea this is going on. And, and they're, you know, I guess liable, at least in the sense they have to get legal representation to, to protect themselves. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's what we did. And at first we teamed up, uh, the doctor, not our boss, but another physician and the nurse practitioner and I went to a a lawyer in Kentucky and we were going to we were going to argue the case together, but then I spoke to some friends of mine who are attorneys in Virginia and I'm from Virginia. And, um, she said, you're better off just calling, um, a law firm in Virginia to handle this for you. So I ended up getting a great attorney with, and they were already, this firm was already representing many of doctors (laughs) in in my same situation. So it ended up being, I mean, it still costs a lot. It was very stressful and just, frustrating you know it's, it's especially being out of the racket for a year and a half and just having to dive back into this nonsense you know and yeah i'm so i'm just very thankful that i was completely removed from the whole you know lawsuit 
And, um, you know, that was the best case. Cause at one point it looked like it was going to be, well, some attorneys were telling me it was going to be cheaper for me to just find out how many of these tests I ordered and pay back that amount. Right. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and, um, and that just made me sick to my stomach because I just, I never got any money from it. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You're basically just giving back your, your agreed upon salary, which you're going to pay whether you order these tests or not. Exactly. Um, And my salary, the first three years that I was, or no, the first year, I think my salary was paid by a hospital system in the area that was involved in my recruitment. So he didn't even pay my salary the first year. It was this other hospital system. Right. So it was just (laughs) crazy. Well, the legal system is weird. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think uh, I think the important thing to come away with is that the justice system does not always work ways that one might think are logical. Uh, and it's also very slow. And so oh, okay. you're I mean, you know, you're dealing with this probably for what, a year or um, on it some was, point yeah, it was, the back I think of your mind, right? At least a year. It, it was almost yeah. exactly a year when I found out that we were done. Yeah. So why, um, and why was it called the zombie lab scandal? You know, I don't know that I didn't, I, I'm not really sure. Did you, did, were you able to tell that from the article that I sent you? I couldn't tell um, from the article and that's why I was wondering why they called it the zombie lab. I didn't know if that was the name. I mean, it's interesting the lab was called HDL, which is, you know, which the, the good kind of cholesterol. Right. Right. Uh, right. But uh, yeah, I was trying to figure out why it was the zombie lab scandal. I don't know if there was something more going, if there's something else to it. But, yeah, okay. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. But um, yeah, and I'm not really sure whatever happened with the main physicians who were, you know, making hundreds of thousands of dollars off of this. Yeah. But um, and, and, you know, like I said, I've seen similar behavior in the toxicology labs. Once I opened the practice, the toxicology labs, urine tox labs would were beating down my door. And one of the things they would say to me was, you can get dividends in the company and and I, you know, I would say that's not legal, wow. <laughs> you know, and they say, oh, but it is. We've cleared it. This, this, you can call this doctor and this doctor that's doing it. And I said, it's OK. It's yeah. not ethical. I'm not doing that. I'm, you know, so um, I, direct primary some- care is, is very ethical. And thank goodness we just we don't have to rely on those schemes um, to keep to stay open. You know, like I said, I, I kind of I have some sympathy for for physicians who get wrapped up into these sketchy relationships because it is really hard to stay independent as a primary care physician if you're going to continue to deal with third party payers. It's it's a mess. So, right. um, yeah. Right. The, the transparency or the lack thereof is what really causes a lot of these problems, right? Because you don't have patients who are invested in the, in the pricing. Mm-hmm. They have no idea. They, <clears throat> so they have no really, since their bills come so much later, there's no way for them to even approach this for the most part ahead of time. Because I think most people think that it's covered by insurance or whatever. And so then when they find it's not totally, it's sort of like two months after the fact and there's no way you can price shop or comparison shop at that point. Right. Um, what what this reminds me of is this is unique, but it's not unique, right? I mean, I I look at when I've talked to other direct primary care docs who left systems, and, I, and you talk to any employed physician, 
whether they're a specialist, whether they're a, a primary care, there is, they're all, they're usually part of large health systems, base of hospital, laboratories, imaging, they've got the whole, you know, everything. And there is a huge push to maintain all the work that's done on a patient. And that means all their tests and even maybe even the pharmacy possibly within the system, right? You make sure you use, you know, our labs and our pharmacy and our imaging and make sure, you know, our radiologists and all mm-hmm. referrals go to our surgical specialists. And um, it it is pretty surprising with the, the regulatory framework that exists within this country and with, you know, Stark, um, the Stark laws, which basically prevents kickbacks. Uh, it's one of the, you know, the main things right. with the Stark laws. It is, it is really remarkable that that sort of practice is even allowed. I mean, it it shows you that the um, the lobbying strength that the hospital associations have at the state and federal levels that they can they can probably maintain that. And and as a patient going through the system, you you don't really have. Oftentimes, they don't think enough to say, "Hey, what's this cost?" or "Why can't I go see someone else?" Mainly because they're not making the the main payments. Like I would think, if people are making the payments. They're going to be much more judicious about where they're going to get their laboratories and imaging, because especially when you look at the, the retail pricing, it's like totally different across town. Oh. And that is changing a little bit with people having more of a high deductible, you know, right. plan. Um, we're seeing that change some, which can be a good thing if you, you know, as a patient, if you have a direct primary care physician who knows where to send you. Um, for those patients who don't have that as an option, I feel bad for them because they will end up with these exorbitant bills, you know? So, yeah. And yeah. I, I was talking to, um, I think it was Dr. Cochran a number of episodes back when he, and he was head of Kaiser and I think, it, I think it was him who was talking about how one of the real important things as a physician, and I hear lots of DPC docs talk this as well, is that you have a fiduciary responsibility towards your patient because you're healing, you're healing the patient, but you also have to keep in mind if you, you don't want to bankrupt your patient and you no. have to make decisions that are, that are financially sound as well as medically sound and, and to, to try and say, well, those don't matter or to not even think about it. And that's someone else's problem is, is not malpractice, but it's probably not good medicine. It's, it's, there, there aren't many people who would have any sort of business where they say cost doesn't really and you know, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine anyone who comes and gives you a quota for something. I mean, they may hope that you don't care and you'll pay whatever, but um, <laughs> there's usually, there's usually some, you know, some discussion about, well, you know, this is how much it is. Oh, you don't want to have those tiles in your bathroom. We can, you know, put in wood floor, whatever, you know, there's always some sort of mm-hmm. thought about the, the cost, but it right. rarely happens in medicine. And you're right. It does now a little bit more with the high deductible plans. And I suspect it'll be even more in the future, but that is, that is something that, I wonder when these with these larger health systems if they're going to have more problems with with people who are going to start demanding you know leakage mm-hmm. as the as those systems describe it as leakage of patients and their services outside their control. Yeah. Well, I approached someone from our state legislature recently about taking on certificate of need laws in Kentucky because thankfully I'm close enough to Indiana that my patients can go to Indiana to get x-rays and MRIs because it's so much cheaper. Um, and it's mainly because of our, our con laws in Kentucky. And she just kind of shook her head at me. She just doesn't want to take it on. I mean, the hospitals will fight it. They have fought it. 
we've tried, apparently it's been tried here in the past. So the, you know, the hospital lobbies are very powerful. They have a lot of money. Um, and I know, I also, and I know that they are doing exactly what you were saying, um, because one of my, one of my colleagues just recently left a hospital system here in the Louisville area and she's doing direct primary care as well. And, um, they, she, they actually tried to make her sign something saying that she would send her patients uh, for imaging, for specialty care to the same system. So I don't know how, they, I don't know how they're able to do that either. She didn't sign it, of course, but, um, that's what they're trying to accomplish is to keep everything within the system. I mean, I, I understand from a business standpoint why they, you know, if you have those services, you absolutely want everyone to use them as much as possible. And so the whole point of having all these people who are under your employment is that they maintain things within your system. But it would, it, it seems from a, from, from a star class standpoint, again, it's really surprising that there aren't more whistleblowers or, um, you know, people who are like, you could, because I know a lot of these institutions or businesses, they'll have like green lights, red lights, yellow lights, you know, you're referring to little, you're not referring, you know, mm -hmm. referring okay, but you need to do more. Uh, and then there's this, that you would think that you just have to publish it a couple of times, like leak it to a newspaper or something, or, I mean, if there are any newspapers left, but, you know, right. there are people who probably might be interested in this sort of thing who would point this out. Because I don't think most people would be okay with knowing that this sort of thing goes on. Yet that's no. the expectation. And it leads to really perverse incentives like it was for the for the owner of your practice that you worked at. And then it then you get, as a physician who just, you know, just doing her job, suddenly you're swept into a lawsuit because some guy's doing, you know, shady stuff. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it was not a small bill, you know, to the, to the attorney. Yeah. No, just, um, it was, yeah. It was expensive. Just talking to him is expensive. Yeah. Well, especially for something that you were not at all liable for, right? I mean, it's, that's, mm -hmm. that's always the most frustrating thing when you're getting legal, you're paying, you're paying money for something that there's absolutely no reason that you should even have it, that you're not culpable for any sort of crime, you know, at all. Right. I mean, that's the way the system works, right? But it's, um, mm. is was that even covered by your malpractice? It was a private, is that no. totally outside of malpractice? No, completely outside of malpractice. We paid, <laughs> uh, I don't remember what the total ended up being, but it ended up being a lot less than we, than the worst case scenario that we kind of had in our, in our heads. Um, you know, we yeah. have some familiarity with the justice system and with attorneys, with my husband being a homicide detective. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> we had a worst case scenario in mind and we didn't get anywhere near that. Thank goodness. Um, yeah. Yeah. But another thing that we didn't touch on is I think a, very few physicians really understand how affordable lab testing and, um, x-rays and imaging can be just because they're so uh protected or isolated within whatever system they are in um especially the academic physicians who you know just don't really see any of it they don't understand that i think i saw a post by you on twitter about um about a cash price versus going through insurance oh, yeah. uh, and i had something yeah. similar with a patient she ended up paying $900 out of pocket for an ultrasound that should have been $135 had she gone over to Indiana and gotten it. So that that's been educate. You know, I've been 
educated over the years on this as well. I heard Josh Umber and others in the DPC movement tell me all of these things like, oh, no, you can get this for that or this for that. And, I, you know, it's hard to believe until you actually do it. And um, so I hope that the word is getting out there and people don't really believe that an MRI needs to cost $3,500 or, you know. So. Right. Oh, I mean, there's no question. I think... I think as more people start shopping, you're going to, you see a huge disparity in pricing. I mean, there's going to be a region, there'll be regional differences. You know, in New York city, it's going to cost more than if you're in Topeka, Kansas, I imagine. Uh, right. But, but like anything, there's going to be a, a range, but it's going to be a small range. The range is so huge between the pricing for all sorts of products, whether it's pharmaceuticals or laboratory testing or imaging and mm-hmm. um, hospital stays and I, at some point, when people start paying for it, I mean, I think those things work out. At this point, of course, not many people are paying for it or they're they're not thinking about it ahead of time. And so, I mean, until right. that happens, I really don't... Th- you can pass as many laws as you want and I don't think really anyone's going to care except people like you who are working outside the system and you're shopping around for patients who are, you know, shopping around as well. And so, it's sort of a nice symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what would you say f- for starting a DPC practice, you just decided to do it. What made you make that jump? Because I think I have lots of docs who I mentioned this to, and they're like, well, you know, I don't know how much, how much demand there is for that sort of thing, or how do I, you right. know, how do I get the patients over those sorts of things? You sound like you just had to get out and just do something different. Well, and so and it was the, like a the, personal the addiction practice kind of um, funneled me toward that as well, because when I started treating addiction in, um, 2008, I was still employed by the hospital in Carrollton, Kentucky, which is a rural area. And at that time, um, addiction treatment, no substance use disorders were covered by Medicaid or most insurance companies. So it was just not a covered benefit, even though it was supposed to with the parity laws and so forth. It was not. So, um, so I started treating patients there. I got to, I got to 30 and then I went to the hospital and I said, I want to expand this addiction treatment program. I want to see a hundred patients. And they told me, no, they said, no, we don't, we don't get paid anything. (laughs) Um, so that, that was when I started working for another company in Kentucky. (laughs) This is like a whole nother sketchy story, but it was, it was an addiction, an addiction treatment company called self-refined in Kentucky. And they were doing great work. They were helping so many people. And, um, but it was a cash based it was a cash based treatment center. So I started working for them once a month. And I was work- when I joined this other practice, the patient center medical home, I, they allowed me to take one day off a month to go work at this addiction treatment facility. And so that would, that pushed me into it because I loved the work because I was able to spend 30 minutes to an hour with people. So it was, it was, eye-opening, you know, it was, it was very fulfilling because I felt like I could actually do a good job versus what I was doing in primary care. So that was part of it. I knew that it would be better for me and better for the patients. And then simultaneously, I just happened to get, um, I think one of the AAPS um, Thrive meetings was in Louisville and I missed the meeting, but somebody sent me Josh Umber's talk from the meeting. And so I watched it and that was when I said, you know, I started talking to my husband about it, like, this is what we need to do. You know, I have the addiction treatment as well, so we can charge more for that. I have the specialty. We'll build it until we build a practice. And then, you know, 
um, I just, we just went for it. He was very supportive. My husband was very supportive and, um, you know, he knew I wasn't happy with what I was doing and I was either going to, I was going to have to find something else to do if, if I couldn't be a real doctor, you know? Um, right. Cause I, I mean, I, I literally felt like I was doing harm. I would come home and have trouble sleeping because I would think about almost every patient that I saw during the day and what I possibly could have missed. And, um, so it, the system was just, it just was not a good fit for me. And direct care is a perfect fit for me for the type of doctor that I want to be. And, um, and then I think it was maybe December of 2015. I opened in May of 2015. And then in December of 2015, I got baptized <laughs> again. I got baptized when I was a child, but um, started going back to church and just like really bringing God into the whole thing. And, you know, I, I believe that made a difference as well. So, um, yeah, well, I, th- yeah. I think it's easy for, for people to forget. It's easy to forget that, that uh, physicians are people and they have all sorts all sorts of different spheres in your life, whether it's your marriage, your family, your career, you know, and those all have to sort of work together. Uh, if there's one that's really broken, it's, it affects all the rest. And so, mm-hmm. and so that's why I'm, I mean, it's great that your husband helped you and cause I'm sure he wants you back fully too. Right. And so I'm yeah. glad to hear that that worked out for you and um, that everything I think now that you survived the zombie been, labs. Yeah. It's easier now. I would say to anyone out there kind of on the fence, um, but, and still skeptical that now it's going to, it's going to be easier now because more people are aware of the model. Um, there are things happening with the system, at least for now. I mean, who ever, who knows what's going to happen in the political world, but yeah. that are making it easier for people to have more options. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, I mean, I switched to it and I think it's great. I mean, I, I'm a pretty healthy person, so I really, I'm just a, a nice patient for my, for my doc to have, but mm-hmm. um, I think it's the demand will, will catch up at some point. And I think, and at that point, that's when they're going to try and pass the laws. It'll be, but I, I still contend that it'll be too late at that point because people will, will burn down the state houses or the, this U S Capitol if they right. try and take it away from people. Uh, it just makes too much the relationship sense. You have is so much yeah, it just, yeah, right. It, it just no makes question. way too much sense. And I pay for it. My, my position is direct primary care. We actually share space and I pay for it for me and my son. And uh, even though we have, we have law enforcement insurance. So technically, you know, supposedly good yeah. insurance. And it's because I had some bad experiences with, within the system, even with my family. Um, so I just decided I was going to make that investment. And again, we're pretty healthy too, thank goodness. And we don't have to use healthcare much, but um, at least I know I can get in when I need to get in and that somebody's going to be listening to me for as long as I need. Yeah. And there's nothing more dis- discouraging than going to see someone, going to the primary care and seeing someone who knows less than you. I mean, then you're paying. <laughs> And so, I mean, I have insurance too. And so that's, I feel the same way. So right. well, I want to really uh, thank you again for being on and talking to me about the zombie lab and scandal. And uh, mm-hmm. maybe at some point we'll have to figure out exactly what, ha- why it's the zombie labs, but 
Yeah, I'm gonna have to look that up because I I found that I looked that article up today and I and I saw that, but I haven't looked in. I had never heard it referred to that term, you know, as zombie lab before. So I'm gonna have to research that. It's time. a great it's a great 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 line, and it, maybe it's just because the lab was, you know, it was sort of like a fake lab or was and I guess it was a real lab, but it was kind of like shoddy or shady sort of setup. Um, it was. Where can people find more about you who want to find either writing or on Twitter, Facebook? I have a, a Facebook page, Bluegrass Family Wellness Facebook page. And then I think it's Unbridled MD is the Facebook page. And same with my Twitter handle is at Unbridled MD. And, um, and then, of course, my website is bluegrassfamilywellness.com. Um, and then I have written a few articles. You can probably just find them on Google and then, um, was involved in that pain management task force, which was really, really awesome as well. So probably the best place to go is my website because then you can find everything there. Yeah. And just follow mm-hmm. you on Twitter because you got all kinds of interesting stories all the time. Uh, yeah, I'm thanks kinda, again that, for that's kind of a bit of an addiction. I probably need treatment for that. <laughs> yeah, you might Twitter need some addiction. Twitter Suboxone somehow, right? I don't know. What, I don't what know. That would yeah. be. I have to force myself to well, take breaks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for being on, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Yes, thank you so much for having me on, Dr. Larson. I appreciate it. I want to offer a little postscript at the end of the show. Just because I did get you on a little bit of clickbait in calling this a zombie lab scandal, it is that way in the lay press in numerous articles. And the reason why, which was unknown to us, both Dr. Rutherford and I during the inter- taping of the interview, uh, is that because the company that was suing HDL Labs was actually completely bankrupt. And so it was essentially this come from the dead, rising from the dead zombie lab that was trying to recoup its losses from and its payouts that it had paid to various you know, nefarious characters like the doctor she mentioned who was running the clinic that she was working for a while. So no actual zombies were present, no brains were eaten, but I just want to give you a little update to why it was called the zombie lad scandal. So yes, it was a little bit of clickbait, but I think it's a fun title anyway. It makes the story a little bit more interesting. So I hope you enjoyed the show and enjoy the postlude with my son, Andy. Enjoy. Thank <laughs> you. 